transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just unnatural, dog is off sabbatical, rather watch an exit. No, at some point, no matter where it is, whether it's uh, Texas or whether it's Florida, you know, it, it ends. But I, I can say in the case of Texas, in the case of Florida, in the case of Louisiana, uh, some areas also got grazed. They have been incredible in the response and incredible in how fast it's coming back. And in many cases, areas that were devastated are already back. In this instance, uh, it's a more difficult situation. Uh, But I think the governor understands that FEMA, the military, first responders cannot be there forever. And no matter where you go, they cannot be there forever. That was President Trump at a joint White House press conference with Governor Ricardo Rosario of Puerto Rico back in October. Though Rosario praised the president, he failed to assign a rating of 1 to 10 for the government relief effort in Puerto Rico so far, like the president had, with the main soundbite from the meeting being President Trump saying that relief operations on the island one month after Hurricane Maria made landfall there had been a perfect 10. Put in an undeniably precarious position, in a desperate need of federal relief funds for his constituents from a president known for responding well to flattery, Rosselló appeared to do his best to praise the administration's efforts in the first month while emphasizing the need for long-term help that President Trump seemed to be attempting to shirk in his remarks. Uh, the reality is that we still need to do a lot more for the people of Puerto Rico, and that's why we're meeting here. This is not over, not over by a long shot. And and again, it is uh, the president's commitment to work with the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico uh, to treat us equally uh, on this uh, this event, to make sure that those 250,000 that have lost their homes uh, get uh, equal treatment, that we can start restoring the more than 42 roads that have been uh, destroyed in in Puerto Rico, that we can lift up our energy grid. And that is uh, something that needs to start happening now and I uh, petition the Corps of Engineers, I petition uh, FEMA and our power authority to work together so that we can be aggressive and we can get results for the people of Puerto Rico in restoring energy as soon as possible while keeping an eye on uh, having the opportunity to have a, a, a better system for Puerto Rico. But just how good has that relief effort been? And how does it compare to similar federal responses in Texas and Florida that the president described as incredible in the clip heard at the top of the show? Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Tonight, we'll examine the relief effort in Puerto Rico by taking an extended look at a new investigative report by Danny Vinick, assistant editor of The Agenda at Politico, that compares the response to Hurricane Maria on the island to the response in Texas following Hurricane Harvey. On the show two weeks ago, I spoke to Sarah Laskow of Atlas Obscura about the difficulty of correcting the water system in Puerto Rico. At the start of that episode, I mentioned that it would be the first in a series of shows we'd be doing to continue to examine the recovery effort in Puerto Rico. Today will be the second episode in that series. Outside of Trump's own supporters, there seems to be a popular notion that Puerto Rico has not received the same kind of humanitarian response seen in Texas and Florida. 
from the fact that it came on the heels of two other major hurricanes, Harvey and Irene, which both made landfall in the U.S., to President Trump's declaration at a speech on tax policy a week after Maria hit Puerto Rico, that it is complicated to get supplies to the island because it is, quote-unquote, surrounded by water, the stage did not seem to be set for the kind of perfect relief effort that the president believes transpired. However, with a level of devastation in Puerto Rico still difficult to fully quantify even to this day, evidence for an unequal relief effort has been hard to come by. In light of this, my guest Danny Vinnick, assistant editor of The Agenda at Politico, took all of the comparative data he could find on relief efforts in Texas and Puerto Rico, even analyzing the president's tweets on the two disasters, for his March 27th article, How Trump Favored Texas Over Puerto Rico, a Politico investigation shows a persistent double standard in the president's handling of relief efforts for Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria. We spoke earlier today. Joining me now is Danny Vinnick, assistant editor of The Agenda at Politico and the author of the March 27th article, How Trump Favored Texas Over Puerto Rico, a Politico investigation shows a persistent double standard in the president's handling of relief efforts for Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria. Hello, Danny. Welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Before we dig into the eye-opening data that you uncovered uh, for the article, can you talk a little bit about the methods you used to compare the Trump administration's relief efforts in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria struck the island on September 20th with that of Texas when Hurricane Harvey hit the region three weeks earlier? You mentioned in the piece that you reviewed public documents, uh, newly obtained records from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and interviewed more than 50 people involved with disaster response. But you also had some private documents sent your way also, right? Yeah, we, we used a lot of different sources of information to try to compile and understand what FEMA's response uh, to the hurricanes, both in Puerto Rico and in Texas, actually looked like. Uh, a lot of the reporting, especially in the days and weeks after the storm, was very good, but it's a lot of, you know, fog of war and, you know, kind of in the moment makes it a little tough to kind of decipher exactly what it looked like. So we wanted to take the opportunity to take a step back and look at some numbers and really understand what resources are actually marshaled in each situation, how many helicopters were used, how many federal personnel were on the ground, food, water, you know, other statistics like that to get a real sense of what the response looked like. To run down some of your more eye-popping findings for listeners, 10,000 federal workers have been sent to the island of Puerto Rico in the more than six months since the storm, while 30,000 have been deployed to Texas. 1.6 million meals were delivered to Puerto Rico, while 5.1 million have been delivered to Texas in the wake of Harvey. And perhaps the most startling statistic of all for me, $6.2 million of, of individual assistance has been approved for the uh, for Puerto Rican residents, compared to $141.8 million of, of individual assistance for Texas. What are some other discrepancies between the two disaster areas uh, that you found particularly significant in the data? So for the data that you just mentioned, it's important to note that those are within the first nine days, and so it changed over time. And one of the things we really found was that the, this, 
the response in Puerto Rico was initially much slower. It was one of the big challenges here. Eventually, it did ramp up. And actually, uh, you know, as of a few weeks ago, they've delivered tens of millions of meals and tens of millions of liters of water to the island, which are both records for the agency. And so they did marshal significant resources over time for Puerto Rico. It just took time for them to get there. Uh, another metric that we used was on helicopters. And it's a little bit tough to compare because there's not uh, exact days. But what we found was it took uh, you know, just a couple days for the uh, Department of Defense to get over 70 helicopters in Houston, helping rescue people from flooded waters and things like that. Uh, in Puerto Rico, it took almost three weeks to get the 70-plus helicopters that were eventually used from the Department of Defense to help with delivering food and water supplies and other rescues there. And so you know, that's one metric that we found that was particularly important, especially because helicopters are just critical for an island like Puerto Rico that is a thousand miles from the mainland United States and where you have to, you know, afterwards, a lot of the infrastructure was so broken. There was so much debris and flooding that a lot of the way to deliver supplies was through helicopters. And so that, that number really stuck out to us. And also the aircraft carrier that was in the region would have been able to assist with air support as well if they had been sent there, right? Yeah, they, they did send a couple of carriers there, but uh, a lot of people I spoke with said that it just wasn't enough. Uh, one in particular, uh, the USS Abraham Lincoln was off the coast of Florida to help with Hurricane Irma, which struck Florida in mid-September, and it was helping you know protect some military installations there. But a number of emergency response uh, personnel and people I spoke with said that it could have just gone down to Puerto Rico and helped with uh, the recovery efforts there. Instead, it was directed north on a different mission. And there were a number of different things like that where uh, people were a little skeptical or surprised that there wasn't a greater effort mounted. One detail in your article about the Puerto Rico recovery effort that I think a lot of people may be unfamiliar with is what you describe as the, quote, experimental formula for calculating the federal funds allocated to rebuild its public infrastructure called 428 that federal officials appear to have all but forced Puerto Rican officials to agree to. Can you describe where 428 came from and why the administration was so adamant that it was the method used in rebuilding Puerto Rico? Yeah, so 428 is this new funding formula. It dates back to Hurricane Katrina and was used most prominently after Superstorm Sandy in New York. And it effectively uh, grants a, a local government or a state government a block grant to more efficiently and effectively use federal money to help rebuild their public infrastructure. But it also comes with some risks. And the biggest risk is if there are any cost overruns, uh, the local government is responsible for paying them. Traditionally, uh, any cost overruns would be paid for by the federal government, and so it takes some of the risk away from a local entity. For Puerto Rico, from what I was told by multiple sources, is that the White House was very, very set on them using 428 across all of their rebuilding projects, from roads and bridges to school districts to electricity and this has never been used on nearly this wide of a scale. It's never been used across an entire disaster rebuild like this. And so there are a lot of questions and there's been some contentious negotiations between the White House and Puerto Rican officials over exactly what this is going to look like. Uh, FEMA is actually drafting some guidance documents right now that are very Puerto Rico specific because of what a unique situation this is. And there's a lot of concern in Puerto Rico that they're going to end up getting a block grant that is smaller than they think they deserve, which will lead to cost overruns and you know, put a lot more of the actual cost onto them. What are some of the other ways that 428 could affect Puerto Rico's longtime financial picture? You know, 
in many ways, 428 is a big opportunity for Puerto Rico in certain situations, particularly because it's a block grant and because they could try to rebuild smarter. Under the traditional rebuilding financial mechanism, you have to rebuild just how it was before, which uh, for anybody who's been involved in Puerto Rico knows that's a pretty bad idea. Their, their infrastructure was degraded. Their power system is set up in a way that doesn't make much sense traveling across the entire island. And so there's you know a big opportunity to rethink and to really you have almost a clean slate in terms terms of working to rebuild for the future. But as I said, the fact that the cost overruns could uh, force the island to you know, pay a significant amount of money if they actually happen, you know, makes this a real risk. And so uh, there's a lot of eyes, particularly on contractors and Puerto Rican officials, to see how this is going to be implemented. A significant part of your political article focuses on questionable personnel choices, like the decision to keep current assistant administrator for field operations within FEMA's Office of Response and Recovery in Washington, D.C., Mike Byrne, a highly seasoned discover a disaster recovery expert in Texas, an area which was, you report, stabilizing for an additional three weeks instead of immediately sending him to the island to oversee the federal relief effort there. What do you believe was behind this decision, and how do you think it could have affected Puerto Rico's re- recovery? Unfortunately, I never got a great answer from FEMA on uh, why Mike Byrne, uh, the man you're speaking about, was chosen uh, to go down to Puerto Rico three weeks after the storm hit, even though he went down to Houston a few days after Hurricane Harvey struck that region. So I I never got really a satisfactory answer on why exactly that was the case. Uh, One thing I heard repeatedly is that uh, Puerto Rico's local office on the island, uh, the head of that is a guy named Alejandro de la Campa, who uh, has been there many years. He's very experienced with Puerto Rican officials, know the, knows the mayors and the land very well, uh, speaks Spanish, which is something that uh, was an impediment in some situations for first responders down there. And so there might have been a hesitancy to put in somebody from the outside at first, but three weeks from what I've been talking to people down there was a long time to keep someone who isn't as experienced and who isn't as skilled at emergency management in such an important position after such a powerful storm. Were there any other personnel choices that stood out to you as particularly egregious? Yeah, that that was the main one, and uh, you know we looked at some other information on on the quality of the personnel down there, and there wasn't a huge difference uh, in terms of qualifications between uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Houston, and so uh, for us that was that was the thing, and and for the people we spoke with and various Puerto Rican and uh, former federal officials. Uh, that was the big one that stood out. You spoke to several former and current legislators who outlined some of the political power plays that members of Congress can use to force the federal government to get funds for their regions following natural disasters. What are some of the ways that Puerto Rico is at a disadvantage in the wake of a major storm like Maria because they don't have representation in the halls of Congress? This is an issue that was simmering kind of under the surface in almost every conversation I had with people, which is when a storm like uh, Hurricane Harvey hits Texas, uh, when Superstorm Sandy hit New York, Hurricane Irma hits Florida, there's a very powerful delegation of lawmakers, governors, who can you know, appeal to FEMA, appeal to the president, uh, appeal to other elected officials to get uh, resources and assets to help them recover. And it's really important, not just in the first days after the storm, but months and years afterwards. Uh, I talked to one congressman, Dan Donovan uh, of New York, who said he is still you know, constantly 
on the phone talking with female officials, trying to get them to help his constituents for various problems that are still coming up as a result of Superstorm Sandy over five years ago. And so you know, that's something that Puerto Rico doesn't really have. They don't. They have one non-voting delegate uh, in the House. They have no senators, and they have a governor uh, who, while as powerful as uh, you know, Florida and New York, doesn't quite have as oomph as, as those governors do. And so you know, you can see this show up in all sorts of different ways. Uh, John Cornyn, who's the number two Republican in the Senate, very powerful, held up the nomination of a key White House official for months while he was you know, lobbying the White House and lobbying Congress to get more money for Texas. He eventually relinquished that hold when the when Congress passed a $90 billion disaster spending bill. And that's just one of the tools that, that someone like uh, Congress, uh, Senator Cornyn has at his disposal that is unavailable for Puerto Rico. With the unavailability of these tools, do you believe that it was a factor in why Governor Rose Ho uh, uh, agreed to 428, uh, an untested financial uh, way of distributing these funds, rather. It's hard to know for sure. And, uh, you know, we, I, when I asked him about this, he didn't say that uh, the White House forced him to do it. He said, I believe they were adamant that we adopt 428. And so whether or not it would have been different if. Uh, you know, there were some powerful senators from Puerto Rico who were lobbying against it. I, I can't be for sh- I can't be sure, uh, but you know, in talking to different Puerto Rican officials and other people who have been involved in this, they suspect that a little bit more political power could have made a difference. I'm speaking with Danny Vinick, assistant editor of the Agenda at Politico, and the author of the March 27th article, How Trump Favored Texas Over Puerto Rico. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI. My name is Jesse Lent. Danny Vinick, considering that Puerto Rico has never had this kind of representation in U.S. government, as we were just discussing, since becoming a U.S. territory in 1899, how much do you believe the botched recovery there, or at least unequal recovery there, is the result of an administration that is unmoved by their cries for help, and how much is just a simple result of not having a senator or House member to fight for them? It's, it's hard to disaggregate each one of those effects. There's a lot of different forces that were working against Puerto Rico in this situation. Uh, lack of political power was certainly part of it. Uh, there are also just some things that were unlucky in a way. Uh, they were the third of three major hurricanes that hit the U.S. after Harvey and Irma, and FEMA was stretched very, very thin at that point. And at that point, it would have been better to switch resources over and from what I can tell and from talking to people involved in this, people probably underestimated the extent of the storm uh, initially in the first kind of few days and weeks, which is you know, why the resources weren't there. Uh, but it's also certainly possible that some uh, pressure from the administration or, or lack thereof uh, didn't cause, cause less of a response than should have been the case. You also explore in the piece how President Trump, for his own part, has not been particularly supportive of the Puerto Rico relief effort in his rhetoric, his Twitter feed, or his one appearance on the island since the storm two weeks after Maria, when the indelible image of him tossing paper towels into a crowd of hurricane survivors at the Cavalry Chapel uh, went out around the world. Can you talk about how his appearance on the island and his sentiments and speeches and Twitter have affected the situation on the ground in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so one of the things we looked at was his tweets, which seems kind of funny on the surface, but at the same time is a pretty good proxy into kind of where the president was focusing at the time. And after Hurricane Harvey, he sent 24 tweets about the storm and about Texas in the first week, whereas after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, he sent just eight. 
and a few of those suites are actually critical of the island of its infrastructure and, and financial situation. And so we saw a very big disparity in both the quantity uh, and information in the tweet after each of those storms. And in talking to other response experts, what they told me is that this sends a subtle signal to the bureaucracy about how to prioritize. And it's difficult to pinpoint a decision here or there that might have been made as a result of the president's focus, but that you probably would have seen a stronger, quicker response if there had been a higher priority from the White House on this. It was also difficult not to notice the difference in tone with Trump's speeches on the ground in Texas and in Puerto Rico. And and I don't recall him in Texas or in Florida mentioning, uh, I, I forget the exact quote, but you've really gotten us our, our budget into trouble, Puerto Rico, sort of castigating the island uh, for a natural disaster. Yeah, that's been lurking uh, in a lot of the comments he's made. If you look at his Twitter account, too, after the storm, he had a few different tweets where, uh, you know, he said something along the lines that we can't keep our first responders in Puerto Rico forever, uh, which struck a, a lot of people on the island as both you know, very worrisome about the fact that the federal government could pull out resources too quickly and insulting at a time when they really, really needed the help. Please correct me if I'm getting this timeline wrong, but in your article, you reached out to FEMA officials and asked why the personnel was only a third, 10,000, as we mentioned at the top of the program, as compared to 30,000 released in the early days of, of the of uh, the hurricane in Texas. FEMA's response to you was that, you know, because there was no nowhere to house relief workers, it was very difficult to get people there. However, you write in the article, quote, according to internal FEMA documents given to Politico by a person involved in the response efforts, a week after Hurricane Maria, FEMA had filled only 150 of 250 beds that were set aside for first responders at the Puerto Rico Convention Center. Two weeks after Maria, FEMA had filled only 1,258 of 2,250 beds allotted for its first responders at the convention center and aboard two training vessels from the U.S. Maritime Service. Do you have a sense of how prevalent these half-full temporary residences for responders were, and what do you believe it says about the relief effort? Yeah, the numbers I got there from the internal FEMA document are something of a snapshot, and they raised questions for me about whether housing was as big of an issue as FEMA told me. At the same time, I did hear from a lot of other people on the island that there was very, very little room uh, for first responders in the weeks after the storm as a result of the fact that a lot of the hotels were without power or were filled with other workers or just victims on the island who had lost their houses. And so, you know, my understanding is that housing was a pretty big issue, but whether FEMA uh, did not use all the space that was allotted for them, uh, that appears to be the case, which uh, was concerning to a lot of people I spoke with. What's your sense of the island now? How many, you said that less than 2% of the people are still without power. Uh, where is the infrastructure? This is something that there has just been a lack of reporting in a lot uh, uh, in a lot of news organizations. And so obviously I should commend you for taking a look at this. Yeah, and it's something that's a little tough to report on as well. And, you know, it's been a long process. It's not done yet. They're starting to get closer. But it's been kind of frustrating for a lot of reporters to really understand where potential problems lie because it's difficult to get to the bottom of it. It's, it's, it's difficult terrain. It's, it's difficult technically to accomplish. And, you know, I, I had challenges myself trying to understand it. Is there anything else you think people need to know about the difference between the government response to Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria? You know, 
one other kind of piece of this puzzle, which uh, you know sometimes can get overlooked, is how challenging the Puerto Rico situation was. When I uh, spoke with just about everyone involved, something that came up a lot was called the perfect storm. That the way the uh, storm went across the island, the infrastructure and financial situation of the island, it was a really, really trying situation there. And while my article makes a pretty strong case that FEMA came up short, uh, they certainly did put some resources there. And you know, after a few weeks, the ramp up did occur, uh, but it was slow at the beginning, and, and that was concerning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking to Danny Vinnick, assistant editor of The Agenda at Politico and the author of the March 27th article, How Trump Favored Texas Over Puerto Rico, a Politico investigation shows a persistent double standard in the president's handling of relief efforts for Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria. You're listening to Trump Watch with Jesse Lent on WBAI New York. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 63 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you listen in iTunes or on the Apple Podcast app, please consider giving us a rating or a review. It goes a long way to helping other people find this show. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is trumpwatchwbai. You can also send me an email at jesse at wbai.org. I always love to hear from our listeners. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Yeah, man.